All right, we started the show talking about the updates uh, that uh, were uh, done, uh, given out just a, while, a short time ago. There was a news conference with several uh, Lower Mainland police officers uh, coming together saying that they will continue uh, pulling out all the stops to end this gang violence, uh, that every resource that is available is being used to combat this violence. But is that enough or does something different need to be done? Well, joining me now is former West Vancouver Police Chief as well as former Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General Kashid. Thank you so much for being on the program with us. My pleasure. Uh, we've had a bit of an update uh, as far as one of the shootings uh, that's taken place recently. That uh, is one that took place in Burnaby uh, where police have confirmed an innocent bystander uh, was hit with in the gunfire uh, is expected to make a full recovery. Uh, an arrest has been made in that case. What are your thoughts, though, on, on just the volume of shootings that we've seen in Metro Vancouver recently? Well, the volume, I think, has been pretty consistent throughout the years. The frequency of the events occurring in public, I think, is the alarming point here, and I think that's what uh, we need to focus on. So it doesn't surprise me uh, that we've had an innocent person killed given the, uh, as I mentioned, the frequency of this occurring in public places. We've got uh, people that are involved in several conflicts that uh, resort to this type of violent behavior, this uh, bravado attitude, the brazen uh, use of uh, guns to kill people. It's, it's, it's alarming, but it's not surprising because we should be uh, well aware uh, that this has been going on in our region for 15, 20 years from now. We've had some success, but that's limited. And I think we've got to really reevaluate how we respond to these particular incidents and the best use of police resources. Uh, that was mentioned as well in the update today. Uh, Burnaby RCMP uh, telling people uh, that they are engaged in proactive policing and, and telling the public that they can rest assured that all of the available resources are being used. Uh, what does that actually mean, though? Well, it doesn't mean much because we've heard it before. We've heard that rhetoric from law enforcement leaders previously, uh, yet we're still dealing with this particular uh, violence occurring in our communities. The police, at best, need to suppress the activity, not even worry about intervening right now and not even trying to prevent it uh, in the future. You've got to get a lid on the problem right now. We don't seem to see that. We see traditional paradigm responses to the problem that have not worked for many, many years. We've got to utilize what has worked in the past. We've got to build on that. We've got to be creative. We've got to make sure that we put the resources in the right place. For example, Jill, we've got to uh, let these gangsters know that we're on top of them. We're going after them. We've got to pull them over every opportunity we have. We've got to talk to their parents, talk to their neighbors, talk to their friends, make sure that areas that they frequent, we've got resources around them. We need them to know You've got to change your behavior because we are coming out after you. And this is a lot different than stamping your hand and banging your fist on a table and say, you know, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. What we know is you can't keep pointing the finger at the family because that hasn't worked. You can't keep saying that uh, you've got to stop this. You've got to, you know, not resort to this violent behavior because that's not working. These people have easy access to firearm, and you know what? They're going to turn on their so-called enemies for whatever reason it could be. It could be drugs. It could be bravado. It could be girlfriends. It could be an array of different things. 
The other part we need to do is we need to utilize the intelligence that law enforcement has more strategically. We've got to get into this strategic policing. We've got to make sure that we get this information out to key people, even to the public. We've had the success of the poster of these gangsters in the past, bulletins that go out on these gangsters in the past. Those are the creativity we need within our police leadership and political masters at this particular time. Uh, the uh, man who was killed yesterday in a uh, very brazen shooting at the airport, uh, which I think a lot of people were surprised at a place where there's RCMP stationed there, there are cameras everywhere, uh, this guy's gunned down in broad daylight. He actually was uh, one of those posters. His uh, face was on that poster a few years ago. I know Kim Bolin has written about this. Uh, so here's somebody who was flagged as dangerous, an associate of the United Nations gang, uh, again, shot and killed at the airport. What's your take on that? Well, this was 2015, uh, that, and my credit goes to the RCMP for putting that information out there because of the uh, behavior of this particular individual. But this is the, it, what we've had in the past, and this is the reason why I say police leadership really has to get it together. These little one-offs that we know have been successful, those are what we need to build on. For example, in the entertainment uh, zone in Vancouver, Jill, you'll recall this, where we had a, an excessive amount of violent behavior and shootings in our clubs and our restaurants, and that was unacceptable. We put together what was known as the firearms interdiction team, and we were on that and in that area on these gangsters every second they moved. We also moved out to the southeast side of Vancouver, where we paid them visits all the time. That's the type of focus we need to have. And I think we've got to realize that these gangsters' rights do not trump the rights of the collective community at large. And I think the courts need to realize this. We need to make sure that we're going after them. And we need strategic prosecution for anything we can get on these people. Because it is at a crisis right now, Jill. And there's no signs of it abating based on traditional responses. Uh, does it push the problem elsewhere when you talk about the Granville Entertainment District? And I know uh, the people behind Bar Watch will also say that that had a huge impact in that gangsters were no longer welcome uh, in a lot of the establishments. Obviously, this is before the pandemic, but does it then push them elsewhere? Yes, it does. And part of dealing with disbursement is coming on top of them wherever they go. For example, on the southeast side of Vancouver, you recall uh, when I was a commanding officer there that we had several uh, incidents and uh, shots fired calls in the southeast side of Vancouver. And we put together a creative program. It was called Adopt a Gangbanger. We went after the 10 most high-profile gang members that lived in that area and we, we put services all around them. We talked to them. Every time they moved, we checked them. Every time uh, uh, they were involved in activity, we went after them, and we pursued them uh, with, with aggression in that particular area. What we found when we measured the success of that program was, yes, it was pushed out to Surrey. The problem is, and you've heard me talk about it before, is the balkanized system of police accountability here. So, yes, we pushed it out to Surrey, but instead of following that particular program or having that jurisdiction, adopt that particular program, that did not happen. And I think that's part of the problem. So it's not just this. But the priority right now is to suppress this activity, and that's the job of law enforcement.
Do you think it's also the fact that we're seeing, and again, the airport shooting, a place where we don't traditionally see this type of activity, is it a different type of gangster that we're seeing? I mean, the victim, like you said, this is somebody that, that was flagged. We knew of this person and his association. Is it different newcomers to gangs that we're seeing this more brazen approach? Or how do you explain that? Well, what happens is some of the people that we think are more mature is they usually get shot or they get thrown in jail. The, the alarming part here and the difference is the age of these people that are involved in the activity. When we have many 19-year-olds that are gunned down, many young kids that have easy access to firearms and they're at a younger age, uh, you know, certainly this is part of the statistical data that we need to start to look at because if you want to look at the success or the not-so-successful programs, for example, in our school system, in our education system, or in our crime prevention programs, you've got to start to measure that. and You've got to start to see, why do we have these young kids that are 19 years old involved in this behavior when, in fact, we've had these services in for about the last 10 years? This individual that was gunned down at YVR yesterday, he's been part of the system for 10 years ago. He was an athlete at one particular time in uh, high school in uh, Surrey. You know, he, he was a promising uh, young person, but he turned. <laughs> and uh, we knew this 10 years ago, Jill. And as you say, we had bulletins that went out in 2015 based on this individual. So when we look at those institutions that, in society that can make a difference in a young person's life, we really have to question whether we have the right programs in place. All right. Kashid, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, yesterday the weather was lovely. A lot of people getting out, uh, sitting on a patio, supporting a local business if possible. And we know if things go well, there could be reopenings of in-house, inside dining after the May long weekend. Uh, No guarantees. And I know a lot of people would prefer that we uh, had kind of that goal to look forward to. But uh, again, it depends, uh, we're told, on the numbers and how things look. But we wanted to check in and see how restaurants are doing. So Ian Tostenson is joining us now, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill, for having me. How are you doing? Uh, Good. How about you? Pretty good. So how are things going uh, as we are now in the thick of this uh, current circuit breaker? Well, you know, financially it's a mess. Uh, It's a total mess. Um, But... Uh, there's such optimism now about the possibility of reopening and staying open. And what has turned from pessimism is now turning to optimism. And those that are in that haven't closed their businesses that will be there to reopen, I think are looking forward to a very bright future. So we're, we're in a very interesting phase right now. And boy, I tell you, I'm sure glad we're here and not sitting around waiting for their, you know, if there's going to be a vaccination or not. So, uh, it's it's potentially very exciting times. Uh, I was having this conversation yesterday with a, with a couple of people and comparing to what we're seeing in some other areas of the country and, and talking just anecdotally about restaurants in Toronto, uh, where I have family. And, and they were saying, you know, at least here, we still do have the patio option because really questioning, if you're a restaurant in an area where they've been closed for the better part of a year or more than a year, how does a business survive and make any kind of comeback from that? I think it's going to be really tough for a lot of restaurants to do that. I mean, they have had the the benefit of support from rent support and wage subsidy support and uh, takeout and delivery, but we're fortunate here. I mean, 
you know, we at one point were the only uh, place, I think, all in North America that said we'd never close. Well, we can't say that now, but, you know, we had the longest run. Uh, how's this one up for a spin? But we had the longest run, I think, of any restaurant industry in North America during this pandemic. And I just, I, I put that so proudly to the, the restaurant owners here that did such a fantastic job of keeping things safe. But the variants got us and um, we had to shut it down. But, uh, boy, Toronto's a mess. It really is a mess, and I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just it's just dark, dark, and there's not a lot of optimism in, in Ontario even now. Uh, yeah, no, and it's just, yeah, it's um, looking at what's happening there and the numbers and, and the deaths happening, uh, just uh, awful. Uh, when we look at restaurants here, though, some people are, are making the connection, saying that because we're seeing the numbers coming down, or at least going in the right direction, that that's proof that, that indoor dining was, in fact, the problem. Can you make that connection? <laughs> no. I don't think so. I think the reason the numbers are coming down are probably because of the vaccinations. Um, you know, if you look at the the numbers that we did see, in terms, there's never a transmission between um, a restaurant. You know, well, there might have been one or two, but very negligible in terms of transmissions from business to guest. Where we were having the problem, though, was uh, with staff because staff were very social. A lot of staff sometimes worked in multiple restaurants, and that's where, because the variants were so active, that's what really what happened here. But, no, I think that if you go back to hmm, uh, Halloween when Dr. Henry said, go to a restaurant, you're safer than being in your home. We know that the transmissions basically have happened because people gathering in, in private gatherings and not in restaurants where we could control it. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't buy that argument, no. So isn't that a bit then, I mean, that's good to know. And, and I felt very safe in restaurants, uh, even when we were allowed to go inside with the plexiglass, with the, uh, the different measures that were taking place. But doesn't that seem, I mean, that's got to hurt even more knowing that, that you've been shut down also because it's so visible. If you, if you shut down a chicken process, plant nobody sees it but people do see it when you shut down a restaurant do you feel kind of like the the sacrificial lambs yep uh that that we brought that up with with dr henry's staff that this industry was so proud of what it had done and and then it was sad i mean i remember talking we talked to a, uh, one of the uh, staff dr emerson he's a great guy and i said to him i said the, the industry is sad i said they're really sad he said why i said they feel they're being targeted after all this hard work, their field are being targeted. And he said, no, it's not that. It's just that, you know, we're, we're just really trying to keep the, the, the number of social interactions to a minimum. And therefore, restaurants tend to sort of increase those uh, social gatherings. And that's why. So um, the, the industry felt quite sad about it because they were, they were working on that emotional, positive energy that, you know, we've done so well. And they have done well. And, um, you know, it, it, hopefully, um, you know, we're within a few weeks here of, starting to reestablish the reopening, which is, uh, which is exciting. How much lead time do you need, though, or do mm-hmm. restaurants need as far as, is that, is that also, uh, and I know it's based on the numbers and it's based on where we're at in the province, but don't, wouldn't it be easier or helpful for restaurants to know for sure we're going to open up again the day after the May long weekend? What we'd love to see is what Saskatchewan has done. They said May 30th, we're going to reopen restaurants. And uh, they can have six people at a table, and uh, I don't think it's a 10 o'clock restriction. And that's exactly what we need here. And in Saskatchewan, the way they benchmarked it was based on the percentage of people at a certain age group that have been vaccinated. So when they get to those benchmarks, they say, hey, we're going to go to the next stage opening. So they're going to open restaurants. That's the plan. So if Dr. Henry was to announce that today, 
that would be a godsend because we've got to find staff. We'll tell you about that in a second. We also have to order supplies. Right. And that's not going to happen in 24 hours. And the staffing issues are going to be really challenged because a lot of people have moved on, are doing other things right now, have had to take other jobs. And so it's not like we're just going to be able to open up and staff up the restaurants overnight. It's going to take, you know, some real hard work to recruit back into. uh, I was just talking to a restaurant at Whistler. Um, they don't even have very many employees up there. They've all taken off, and they have to do all the rehiring. So setting a benchmark for all of us to say we've got a goal here would really energize the public, would really energize the industry. It puts us all in the same sort of direction to, to pull off something. So I hope that Dr. Henry gives us some dates here. I know she's reluctant, but, hey, if we get to May 30th and the numbers are bad, then we don't open. That's, that's the caveat, and I think that's pretty simple. Right. Just, and I guess, too, it's it's uh, either way, you, you can't really win. And on the one hand, you want that firm date. But like you said, if things take a turn, maybe people hear that firm date and think we're out of the woods. If we don't get the, the numbers, then then you're in the position, too, where maybe you you have rehired and you've put in food orders and then suddenly you don't have anywhere to, to do it because you're not open again. Yeah, I think the, the, the risk of having a target to open is is less than just sort of going, well, we'll see how it, how we do and we'll have to watch the TV at 3 o'clock and see what the numbers look like. I mean, we've just, Saskatchewan's done it and, I, and they're getting a lot of, you know, a lot of um, compliments uh, at being very disciplined in their in their approach. Did you see this weekend, um, well, you probably didn't, but there was a boxing match in Arlington, Texas, 75,000 people in an arena. Yeah, I've seen so I didn't see that exact footage, but I've certainly seen and, and talking to friends in the states, seen places yeah. like arenas, even crowds of eight thousand people, which on the grand scheme of things doesn't sound all that big, <laughs> but it's huge now. Well, that's our future. I mean, if we do this right, I mean, we're going to be back to some some semblance of that, which is quite exciting, isn't it? It really is. So, at this point, what are your? Do you get the heads up before uh, two weeks yeah. out? It should be two weeks from today. We could be talking about the next day. There could be an opening. How, I guess, do do you keep in touch with health officials and then hopefully get the green light at some point leading up to that? Yeah, we we meet with Dr. Emerson uh, as a group of industry group regularly. And um, so we said, look, if you can give us a minimum of 10 days. So he said he heard us. He said there's a group within government that's uh, not with the health excuse me, PHO, but uh, with government, that's looking at the opening plans. So he said, we'll put that in there. He fu- they fully understand that. So I think we should hear something this week. I mean, again, it's going to be dependent on the numbers, but the good numbers we saw on Friday was that uh, I- the ICUs and-, and hospitals were going down, and that's exactly what the, the-, the government wants to see happen. All right. Ian, hopefully next time we talk, uh, there will be even more good news. Thanks so much uh, for joining the show again today. Thanks, Jill, always. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, Global News put in a request through a Freedom of Information request to try and find out exactly how much the city of Vancouver is paying for the costs associated with Oppenheimer Park. As you'll recall, it has been the site of several tent cities. And one year after the lengthy one, the 18-month homeless encampment in Oppenheimer Park, one month since that was cleared, we're getting a better idea of just how much it is costing Vancouver taxpayers. The number is in the millions. And joining me now to talk more about what exactly that looks like is Pete Fry, who is a Vancouver City Councillor. Pete Fry, thank you so much for being with us. 
Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, looking at these numbers, uh, the total cost, I think when you add everything together, is about $3.5 million. So I'm talking about the remediation, uh, the services, and that associated with this park. What are your thoughts on that price tag? Well, you know, it's, a, it's certainly a disappointingly high number um, when we have so many challenges on our budget bottom line and uh, so many kind of service delivery needs for the city of Vancouver. Um, I think the most disappointing piece to it is the damage to the field house, uh, which is, as I understand it, just pure vandalism. And that's that's really sort of disappointing because that does actually impact services that some of the most vulnerable city in our or some of the most vulnerable people in our city actually rely on. And of course, Oppenheimer Park has been lost to the community for over two years now. And uh, it's just it's just really sad to contemplate that <clears throat> on top of it, there was just wanton destruction of it. Uh, on when top you- of the already significant impacts of having a you know, long-term encampment on the site that was never built to accommodate a long-term encampment. You mentioned the field house and the cost of restoring the field house, according to these documents, which is separate from the park restoration. That's jumped. So the original cost estimate of that was going to be $420,000. It's now jumped to $750,000. And my understanding of this is part of that reasoning is because they need to use hardier uh, materials uh, because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, there could be graffiti, there could be vandalism in, in the future. That does seem like a big jump, though, doesn't it? Yeah, and again, I'm I'm really just going off the global figures. I haven't had received a brief from our staff in response to this yet, and and bearing in mind that um, while the park house is City of Vancouver jurisdiction in that in that one instance, uh, generally parks are park board uh, jurisdiction and, and a completely separate sort of budget line item that we don't often look that detailed into the the specifics of the line items. My understanding from the the damage at the field house also was it was it's not just hardier materials to manage graffiti, but damage to more expensive systems like plumbing mm. uh, that we're trying to mitigate and prevent in the future. Uh, it also takes a look at uh, how much uh, the Vancouver Police Department billed uh, during the period for on-duty work, on-duty work uh, overtime work as well. Uh, the mayor, Global News, asked the mayor for an interview. He wasn't available, but did uh, provide a statement uh, talking again about needing help from other levels of government, uh, but also saying that homelessness is expensive. doesn't matter if we're talking about an encampment in a park or someone sleeping in an alley, that it is an expensive issue. Uh, what's your response to that well well he's right homelessness is expensive um you know we see this in in kind of the outreach services uh the damages to parks like this the cost in emergency room visits and unmanaged um medical issues that result from living rough in the cold and the wet and the mud uh so we know that that homelessness is expensive and in fact it's uh for for purely financial value sake uh we're better off investing in housing. And of course, from a human health, safety, and human rights kind of perspective, we want people to be housed, not living on the streets. But for sure, that's that's the sort of thinking behind Housing First, which we see uh, across North America and the Western world as a priority in addressing homelessness, is recognizing that the cost of not addressing homelessness is is typically more significant than the cost of actually housing folks.
Uh, right, because not not that you can say oh, just take that three and a half million and say oh what if we spent it somewhere else. But if if you did, I mean, looking at, at three and a half million dollars, if you're thinking about how many tiny homes would that build, how much modular housing would that build? I, I mean, it could be so. Uh, I mean, that could do a lot in other areas. Yeah, for sure. In fact, um, you know, when I introduced the motion about tiny homes last year, we had a, a company come up from Seattle and speak to it. And uh, they're called Pallet Shelters. They're making uh, fiberglass and aluminum houses with windows and locking doors, uh, and they can assemble in about 20 minutes and cost less than 10,000 Canadian. And they have built-in beds and the whole thing. So we know that there's solutions out there. Of course, in Vancouver, we're constrained with issues around the affordability and availability of land to to put those kind of dwellings. But certainly, um, yeah, there's there's money that could be better spent for sure than than fixing this kind of damage and it's unfortunate i mean we have to fix the damage and we have to ensure that the park is is usable by folks who are desperate to regain access to the park um but you know i hope maybe i know that there's members of the community that have asked the park board to consider maybe uh limiting access to the park uh in the evenings and putting up fencing for the evenings and i think that's something i hope will be a conversation ongoing because it's you know, having traveled to other urban cities where parks are locked at night and in in more kind of urban environments, and they function very nicely in the daytime and, and meet a lot of needs. And, and if we're hearing that from members of the community who are upset about losing their park for the last two years, I think that's certainly warranting a conversation. Uh, what does this say also, do you think, then, uh, as the work is just getting underway to get Strathcona Park back into uh, the pre-encampment state, that uh, taxpayers as well could be looking at another bill in the millions of dollars there? Uh, yeah, there will be a, another bill, maybe not in the millions of dollars, but there's some pretty significant remediation that's going to have to happen on the east side of the park for sure. And I think that there's also going to be considerations around how we rebuild that park better. So it's not just remediating it, but Strathcona Park was largely quite neglected um, over the last uh, several years as far as real infrastructure investments and stuff that we see in other parks. So I think that will also probably inform uh, future investments in the park. I I can't speak for how uh, Park Board will be prioritizing that, but I, I would hope that they put some priority into not just remediating Strathcona Park, but making it better. Uh, but these these are the, the you know the costs of uh, of homelessness, and 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 they're also the the costs of sort of these encampments that oftentimes. So the, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the right for folks to she- seek shelter in a park overnight if they have nowhere else to go. Uh, so I, I think it's important to not to dis- disarticulate the idea of of people seeking shelter in the park and you know, packing up their tent in the morning and going. And I think that's a minimal impact on parks, really. And I think that is kind of a coexistence. I think where things kind of get a little bit more complicated is where you have these large-scale, semi-permanent encampments that really put a a lot of impact and, and demand on the space. Right. How would that work, though, if on the one hand you're talking about perhaps fenced uh, a fenced area or, or fencing off, say, Oppenheimer Park so it's closed effectively at night? How would that work, then, if you're also saying that people actually do have the right if they want to camp there overnight? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is, again, this is, I'm, this is a conversation the park board will have to have, but this is what I'm hearing. I, I do live in the neighbourhood, and we've heard from community leaders that they'd like that consideration because they feel that even with um, the 
the idea that you can camp overnight and then leave, they feel that it's it's just too risky, and they're they're I think feeling kind of bruised from having lost their park on more than one occasion for as long as it has been, and they're just looking for um, solutions that might better avail coexistence. So you know, bearing in mind that Oppenheimer Park, we have a significant elderly population, uh, lots of folks who are living in SROs. Uh, who that is their green space, mm-hmm. and they're living in incredibly small, often really substandard uh, domiciles, and and that access to green space is critically important. And um, I think they deserve that, and that's what all Vancouverites sort of aspire to have is a nice, accessible neighborhood park where they can catch some fresh air, look at birds and trees, socialize, have a playground, uh, have a little field house with a washrooms and water. I think that's not too much to ask for. So if their concerns are in fact that, that um, they're worried that they will lose those, even through, you know, just as we heard vandalism of the field house, I think those are, you know, considerations that we should, uh, or park board should rightly weigh. And uh, just before I, I let you go, I, I know you're in the area of Strathcona Park as well. How are things there now with uh, what's happening? And I understand there's still uh, some people there, and, and it's not as though it's it's back to normal by any by any means. But how are things? Uh, the west side is is kind of open to the public. The east side is completely fenced off. And over the weekend, there was a lot of activity with city trucks coming in and removing uh, truck after truck after truck of garbage. I think there's still some move-out stuff that's been shifted. So some personal possessions have been shifted to the Raymer, uh, Raymer Avenue on the far eastern side for uh, removal. I think that there's a few kind of holdouts, but by and large, uh, it's been pretty successful as far as, you know, and full credit to the province for stepping up as they did and housed an incredible amount of people over, uh, the, you know, the last two weeks. So my understanding is that everybody who needs housing has has now got housing. Um, there's a few activists that are continuing to kind of uh, make a presence there, but I think by and large, um, we're seeing some real sort of positive direction towards uh, clearing the park and then remediating that, that eastern side of the park, which will take some resources and time. All right. Uh, Pete Fry, we will leave it there for today. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Nice to talk to you, Joe. Bye. We started the show today talking about the recent gang-related shootings. An update earlier today from health, sorry, from law enforcement officials on the Burnaby shooting, on the shooting that took place outside at the Vancouver International Airport yesterday. And we've also heard from the National Police Federation and the uh, in response to the gang shootings, a statement from the president of the National Police Federation, Brian Sove. Uh, saying that in light of yet another gang-related shooting in a very public setting, they're asking for a couple of uh, reactions from the province, uh, adding additional police resources to fund anti-gang investigations and to direct the Surrey Police Service to stop recruiting active police officers in the Lower Mainland. Well, joining me to talk more about this is Trevor Dinwoody, the director of the Pacific Region, the National Police Federation. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Joe. I appreciate the time. Wanted to talk about the response from the National Police Federation. So let's start with the first one, is calling on the province to add additional police resources to fund anti-gang investigations and activity in the Lower Mainland. What, what would you like to see specifically there? 
Well, I think we just need an increase in our funding. Uh, you know, uh, it's been fairly stagnant. Uh, the provincial BC uh, line for the RCMP has been stagnant since uh, 2015. Uh, obviously, we've seen no significant increases there. So, it, you know, these things all have a profound effect on what's you know transpiring now. Um, you know, a lot of those, a lot of that funding could be put towards you know, CFCU, uh, the larger gang task force that uh, you know really narrow down and deal with uh, this type of, type of crime. Uh, when we uh, that news conference held earlier today, one of the officers who spoke uh, kind of put out uh, a reassurance to the public, saying we every available resource uh, that is there to fight to gang violence, uh, you can rest assured that every available resource is being used. Uh, so does that kind of it sounds good, but does it also uh, are we talking about resources that are under resourced to begin with? So even if you have every available resource, you still need more. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you need to go no further than Surrey. They've been in an absolute, uh, you know, uh, uh, hiring freeze since 2000 and uh, or going back to 2018. So, you know, the policing is getting more dynamic. It's getting tougher. It's, uh, you know, difficult to put these investigations together. And we're actually seeing, you know, a decline in our funding. We're also seeing a decline in the amount of members that are out there. So I, I do have hope. Uh, that the you know the chiefs of police, obviously the RCMP and um, and public safety are going to get together and have these conversations and you know come up with a reasonable plan of action. And uh, so, I mean, there is hope there for sure. Uh, you're also calling, or your group is also calling, uh, saying direct the Surrey Police Service to halt recruitment of active police officers in the Lower Mainland, uh, including those from the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team, to an inactive potential future police service. Uh, now is not the time to be removing scarce resources from active service in the Lower Mainland. Uh, I'm reading that uh, from Brian Sauvé's uh, statement earlier today. Um, can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, it's very simple. From our perspective right now, we need resources on the ground. We do not need resources behind the desk. The Surrey Police Service has not started up. Uh, They are completely administrative at this point in time, and we need those resources out on the street. We've been preaching this since, you know, we our inception that this will cause destabilization with policing. You're going to have members, uh, a large number of members, leaving some of the municipal forces to come to Surrey. You're also going to have some RCMP officers are going to patch over. There is a significant amount of time that 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 will have to, you know, that transition will happen. Uh, it doesn't just happen overnight. And you're going to have a period of time where these gangs will be able to, you know, to to profit off that time. So if you're calling on on the Surrey Police Service then to halt recruitment, what would that do to the service? Would that not delay uh, the bringing in of that service? Uh, I think at this point in time, our position is that we need more more troops on the ground. So that's where we're going. More, more, More troops on the ground, not behind desks. Uh, and at this point, though, uh, as well, would there ever be a good time in that we're talking about a new police service? And like you said, there will be uh, current members, probably even of the Surrey RCMP, there will be current members that apply. There will be municipal uh, police officer, officers that, for whatever reason, do apply. I mean, is there ever a good time uh, to be recruiting active officers from various forces? Well, we haven't seen a plan yet. So we haven't seen a transitional plan. Uh, you know, there's uh, many ways that we can go about it. Does it mean that uh, the RCMP ends on, you know, 
January 1st of one year, or does it mean that there's a slow transition? Uh, how long will that transition overtake? I mean, there's so many unanswered questions at this point in time. Uh, I can't really formulate a great answer for you, Jill. I'm, you know, my apologies. No, th- no, that's uh, that's uh, quite all right. Would you be calling for this anyway, though? Uh, as far as we have seen uh, 10 shootings, uh, maybe not all of them gang-related, although having 10 shootings in a short period of time uh, in Metro Vancouver is jarring, to say the least. Uh, would you be calling for that anyway, though, even if we weren't seeing this increase in gang activity? Well, since we... Since the NPS inception, uh, we've been looking at this, uh, you know, this unpopular plan. And, you know, we've had, we've, we've continuously said that this is going to cause destabilization. Right now is obviously, we're, we're dealing with unprecedented violence. I mean, yes, we've had uh, gang violence in the past, but brazen daylight shootings, one at YVR, in front of very populated areas, uh, Scottsdale Mall, Willowbrook, um, Cole Harbor. I mean, we're talking about an unprecedented uh, brazen attacks, and we need to be looking at we need to be looking at having all police uh, working together and on the ground. Uh, right, but somebody might look at this and say, "Okay, but you're the federation that represents RCMP members, so you're not going to be in favor of the Surrey Police Service, no matter what it does." And and could it could be perceived uh, that uh, you're, you're using this increase in gang violence to further that point. Yeah, I guess there is a perception of that. Obviously, our number one perception, our number one goal is obviously public safety. Uh, you know, by formulating obviously a robust um, RCMP plan to deal with uh, with the violence would be our first initiative. Obviously, so I I, I, I can't speak to uh, the politics of it. What I can say is that we are completely uh, completely in favor, obviously, of public safety moving forward with that. Uh, what is your response also to the the shooting that we saw at YVR and the the chase afterwards, the uh, the suspects getting away? It's not often, thankfully, uh, that we talk about these scenarios where the suspects actually shoot at police. Does that suggest another level of violence? Does it suggest a different type of gangster? I can't really speak to the specifics of the situation. Uh, I mean, obviously. Uh the vast majority of the information I'm getting is just through, uh, through through text messages, so I don't want to speak to the actual specifics of that situation. I'm not sure how that 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 uh, came to fr- came to fruition. Okay, no, I understand that. It j- just seems like it's got to be. I, I mean, obviously, it's it can be a dangerous job. We're talking about open uh, shooting situations, but it seems like it does take it to another level when we have suspects firing at police. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's incredibly violent, incredibly brazen. All right. We're going to leave it there for today. Uh, Trevor Dinwoody, thank you so much for coming on the program to talk more about this. Thank you, Jill. Appreciate it.